Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 292, The Unyeshiva. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we are here to talk about a new project that we have launched. It's called The Unyeshiva. If you remember, about a year and a half ago, we had an episode that we called Jewish Live, where we talked about how, as a response to COVID in part, and also for other reasons, we were launching what is now the Jewish Live live streaming video platform. And if you remember also, like some months later, I think we talked about this idea that whatever we ended up doing during the time of COVID, I thought of it as like a cocoon that is incubating something else during this strange period of COVID. And someday that butterfly would emerge. And the butterfly is really what we should be keeping our eye on. And we think we have the butterfly here. And it's a project that we're calling the Anyashiva. So we wanted to spend a little time today introducing that project because it includes live classes. And we are going to launch those live classes the first week in October. So if you're interested in spending more time with us in person and live and interacting and learning together, your chance to do that is in just a couple of weeks. And so we want to make sure that you're fully informed about what this project is all about. Lex, any words of introduction that you wanted to give? First off, let's get this out of the way. Anya Shiva does, in fact, sound a little bit like Onion Shiva. <laughs> and I just want to embrace that because as Shrek, as Rebbe Shrek taught us, ogres are like onions and onions have layers. The Anya Shiva has layers. It's hopefully going to be an experience of peeling back those layers over the, the course of the next few semesters and years. And more seriously, yeah, I think the Anya Shiva, from my perspective, is one of the most potentially exciting things that we've done. I mean, I've loved what we have achieved through some of our our holiday programs, you know, Shavuot Live, where hundreds and hundreds of people have been staying up through the night and learning together. Things like Sukkot Live, Purim Live, many of these in-person, I call them in-person, in-person Zoom gatherings, face-to-face in, in that sense of in-person. And this is a is a chance for us to really take that to the next level and begin to build a Judaism Unbound community. Um, on this show, I've talked a little bit about how I'm resistant to using the term community unless it's really clear that whatever I'm describing as a community really is a set of people that know each other and support each other and experience highs and lows together, et cetera. And this is a chance to begin to do that. And, you know, I know every teacher or most teachers say this, right? But like, I really don't see, Dan, your and my role solely as like, conveyor of knowledge, the the one at the front doing all the teaching and everybody else is like receiving the wisdom. I really do believe that this is going to be a process where the learning is filtering up and down and sideways in all directions between teacher and student, between students and students, between different teachers and each other. And I'm really excited about that. The ultimate goal is to empower really every person who wants to be empowered to not feel intimidated by Jewish material. In fact, to feel that 
all the Jewish material that we've inherited is just the raw material out of which we can remix and rebuild and reimagine a Judaism that's going to be powerful and work in the future. And I've thought a lot about, I forget if I've mentioned it before, that there was this project by SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And those are the people that run those big radio telescopes that are pointed all over the place looking for radio beams from extraterrestrials. And you know, none of those organizations can afford to have a computer powerful enough to crunch through all that data. And so what they figured out at one point was that they could ask everybody to voluntarily upload an app to their computer that will allow their computer at night to be kind of running in the service of this project. And by networking all the computers in the world who wanted to participate, they could have a much more powerful computer that would be able to crunch through all that data and ultimately maybe find ETs, you know, and <laughs> in a way, I think that that's what we've always been talking about here with Judaism Unbound, that it's not like some new Moses is going to come from Sinai. There's not going to be some genius who's going to come forward and say, I figured it all out. There's a new Judaism. You know, it's going to be through the work of thousands and thousands of people doing little experiments in their homes and in their families and with their friends and in whatever context they want that things are going to start to emerge and things are going to start to run into each other. I mean, I'm mixing metaphors, but I've also thought about like the primordial soup where all these little tiny molecules would just smash into each other and every once in a while they would recombine into something more impressive and more functional. And the podcast has only ever been a beginning to that. And by the way, the podcast is going to continue, so don't worry. But the podcast has uh, always been a way of kind of getting people into this mind space. But ultimately, the goal has to be, again, for people who want to, how do I take the next step? How do I really get involved myself? And this, I think, is the next stage there. It's, it's a way to uh, really invite people in and say, okay, you're not ready to do that yourself right now because you've been listening to the podcast maybe for a while, but you still don't feel like you're, you're really inside of the Jewish stuff enough to really kind of mix it up. And this is going to be a way that people are going to be able to feel increasingly a sense that, okay, I've got enough, I've got enough raw material here that I can start to be one of the reworkers. And so the class that I'm teaching is called Leadership in a Time of Wandering. And the more important part of it is core texts and ideas for a desert generation. And this is where we're really going to be looking deeply at the story of Moses in the wilderness as an example. But really the point of it is to have people reading a text just on their own without all kinds of traditional interpretations and just to have this experience of reading a Jewish text and saying, here's where I think it's going. Here's what I think it means. And, I, and I, I hope that once people have that experience, they feel more and more able to read all kinds of other Jewish texts without this sense that, oh, I don't know enough. I, I'm not. That's for rabbis to do. I think it starts to get at why we chose the name on Yeshiva. And, you know, I'm always asking our guests like, oh, you chose an interesting name. Why did you choose that name? And so I think it's worth talking about on Yeshiva because first off, it's, you know, unbound and yeshiva, yeshiva being, you know, a center for Jewish learning, then diagrammed together. But the on yeshiva for me also hints at a spirit of unlearning. And I don't mean by that a lack of learning or sort of an anti-intellectual spirit. That's very much not where we're coming from. Like anybody who's listened to this podcast even once knows that you and I are deeply nerds and we want to do all kinds of learning. It's not a discarding of learning. But I do think unlearning is an active effort. And I think there's a lot of ways where 
We've been taught to approach Judaism, Jewish texts, Jewish history, through a certain set of prisms. And we're not even always aware of what those prisms are. What you're describing with when people are learning Jewish texts, they're often sort of consulting the famous interpreters, Rashi and these other guys from many, many centuries ago, usually, usually men. I don't think that people are always even processing that when they read Torah, they're looking in the side margins of their text and going to the interpretations from a thousand or 500 years ago. And then those interpretations sort of shift your own experience of the text. There's so much that we take for granted, even about like which characters are good and which characters are bad, what's happening between the lines. Like there's so much of that that we're actually not drawing from the primary texts themselves and our own relationship to them, but rather other people's relationship to them. And that's, look, I'm not here to say that's bad, but I think it's insufficient. And what it means is that in any time period, we're actually not processing our own approaches as much as we are the approaches of other time periods. So if we want Judaism to be timely and really contribute to the unfolding of a world we want to be creating, it has to be created by us. And that can't be the case if it is constantly intermediated by these folks from other time periods that were bringing really important approaches that were tied to their own experiences in the world. So, right. But setting into motion a process where that's the goal and not sort of a fidelity, a, a loyalty to approaches of the past. Like, I think there's a lot of people, even even like progressive, outside-the-box thinking people for whom reading Jewish text, it's like, huh, which side of this argument am I on? If I'm in Talmud and there's different people saying, ah, this should be forbidden, this should be permitted, this should be like, which side am I on in that discussion? As opposed to what, what related discussion could I bring here that is actually neither on team Hillel or team Shammai, for example, two famous people in, in one era of the Talmud? What's the sentence of the Talmud that I would be bringing at the end of this Mishnah, at the end of this Gemara, at the end of this, you know, piece of Jewish text? That's what we want to be planting through this on Yeshiva. And it's simultaneously a kind of like heresy or unlearning, upending. But I also think it's a deeply traditional act. It's just that we haven't permitted ourselves to do that act in a while. Yeah, exactly. And I I was thinking like another way to really frame what this is all about is to go back to that concept that we developed very, very early on in this podcast, which was the chutzpah versus knowledge curve, where our hypothesis or our kind of description of reality as we saw it was that it tends to be that the more people learned through traditional forms of Jewish study, like they go to a Jewish day school or they go to a rabbinical school or they go to whatever kind of advanced study, is that their chutzpah, meaning their willingness to play around with the stuff of Judaism, declines as they learn more and more because they start to learn things that are presented as this is the right way to do Judaism, or at at least this is the traditional way, the traditional, capital T, capital T, right? The traditional way to do Judaism. You could do it another way, but it wouldn't be the traditional way. So you start to say, well, I I want to do it the traditional way. So you start to get into this mindset, well, I'm going to, at least for a while, I'm going to practice, quote, doing it right. And so people's 
play, playfulness and people's creativity tends to decline as they learn more and more until a certain period comes when they start to learn more and more and then their creativity rises again because they start to learn, oh, actually it wasn't always this way or there really isn't a traditional way. And those things are taught in some of the greatest rabbinical schools. It's not that those things are being hidden. It's that those things tend to come late in the game or they tend to fully register for people later mm -hmm. in the game. And some rabbinical schools never teach it. Is there a way to have a form of Jewish education or maybe it's better to say Jewish learning where that decline in creativity never happens, where there's not a U-shaped curve where creativity declines and then it goes up again as you learn more and more, but rather where it's going up the whole way. Uh, I don't want to make overstated claims about what we're trying to do here. And we're certainly not, you know, we didn't sit down and say, hey, we're trying to invent a new form of Jewish education. But I wonder whether what we're doing here is in, in a certain way piloting a new form of Jewish education. Certainly some of our friends like Svara have been doing that in, in other ways. But I do think that there really is something about a new way of approaching Jewish education where the idea that what you're going to be doing with this material that you're learning from day one is crunching it up, looking at it your way, and doing something maybe quite new with it that that's ingrained into the form of learning. I think that that's relatively new. And and I think that what we're hoping to do, if not invent it, is certainly amplify it and make it the norm for how people think about Jewish learning and Jewish education in the future. I do dream and fantasize that what the Onyeshiva contributes will yield forms of Jewish learning that are seriously different from the ones that have been most centered in Jewish life. It's possible. For a variety of reasons, it's possible. One, the fact that we're online and digital, I think we can bring together people who might have had that call towards creativity at various points and wanted to blend it with, you know, serious Jewish learning. But like they live you know, I, I live in Providence, Rhode Island. There's no there's no yeshiva. Uh, well actually that's not there's no non Orthodox yeshiva of any kind that mm. I could go to. I, yeah, I can go to like synagogues and do some classes, but like it's it's a different kind of thing. And and the learning is one part of an organization that's doing prayer and other, like the Anyashiva is really focused squarely on Jewish learning. But as you said, from the get-go, a kind of Jewish learning that's different. I want there to be a serious reckoning uh, maybe that word is too strong i don't know like i want people to really back out and ask what we aren't teaching in jewish spaces what we aren't talking about what we are talking about too much are we focusing at, when we look on jewish history on one group of people rabbis at the expense of all the other jews there's so many jews who were not rabbinic jews as recently as a thousand years ago, there were 40% of the world's Jews, some by some estimates, were Karaite Jews, which is a group we talked about not that long ago with Sean Leisha. But like, we just pretend they didn't exist. We, we have these rabbinical schools that are the heirs of rabbinic Judaism. And we think it's somehow the most effective or sacred thing to amplify only that group of Jews that kind of won the historical arguments and write off the rest as somehow inauthentic. No, I actually hold myself to be connected to Jews across history. 
mm-hmm. not just the ones who won, mm-hmm. not just the ones whose voices are in text. And what that means is there is an imperative to dig, to really look and find the voices that are not being featured. And that's true of our own time, too. We mention voices of rabbis on most, if I'm getting a source sheet at a Torah study, so there might be modern day quotes, right? They tend to be from rabbis. I like rabbis. I am a rabbi. I want quotes from TV shows that are layered in Jewish experience. I want quotes from people who are Jews in the pews, who, you know, have rich wisdom that often comes specifically because they are not rabbis, specifically because they haven't dove super deep into texts and have a set of assumptions about those texts as a result. We need to be creating contexts where the where the marginalized and the differences we're we're talking we need to be talking and we are talking about marginalized folks on issues of identity. There's also a kind of marginalization that happens when you put certain books on your bookshelf and you don't put others. When you put certain quotes in your source sheet and not others. That's not about people being able to vote. It's not about people like being oppressed or not oppressed, although it can lead to that indirectly. But we as an Onyeshiva want to be doing everything we can to be saying which realms of Jewish voices have been treated as, well, yeah, that's Jewish, but it's not Judaism. That's going to be in our classes. So I, I guess this would be a good time to just say a little more detail about what the Anyashiva is now and what we hope it's going to be and when and whatever. Uh, so first of all, we should have mentioned it probably at the top, but you can check out what is currently there at www.anyashiva.com, or you could just go to the judaismunbound.com homepage and click on it and you'll get there. And our dream is that eventually there will be kind of two sides to the Anyashiva. One is... Uh, live classes, like uh, mostly on Zoom, but who knows, maybe at certain points we'll be able to do things in person. And and those are going to be sort of semester-long classes. Maybe there'll be other formats over time, but right now they're going to be, we're thinking about them as semester-long classes. Now, I should mention that the only semester-long classes we have right now are you and me each teaching a class. The main reason for that, we don't have any money. Like, we, we don't have any money to pay anybody else. So right now, it's just us. We're launching it in that way. But the dream is that we're going to have lots and lots of different classes taught by some of the people that we love the most and you love the most from. Judaism Unbound from the past. You can dream and imagine who those might be. In the short term, we are just doing it ourselves. Uh, but the the dream is that there's going to be lots more people and hopefully sooner yeah, rather and, than later. And sorry to interrupt, but we and we also at the launch have our asynchronous classes, which we, we haven't sort of rolled out as fully as our synchronous classes that you and I are teaching, but that we've got our courses that are online that have been curated with voices that are not ours. Yeah. Those are voices um, that are all over the map from our Jewish live classes and otherwise, so that as we launch even now, it's not only our voices involved. Yeah. And so that asynchronous side is the other side of things. And we're and that is, like you were just saying, Lex, we're kind of remixing a lot of the material that we've already collected and created, whether it's on the Judaism Unbound podcast or through Jewish Live. And we are doing what people have asked us to do for a long time with the podcast, which we have done and created various uh, playlists where you can just listen to a bunch of podcast episodes on a particular topic. So this is like Playlist 2.0, where we're mixing together material from the podcast as well as 
uh, Jewish life. And again, right now, largely because of uh, time and money and uh, mental energy, we only have two uh, classes there right now. One is called Queer Judaisms, Exploring Hidden Histories, Imagining New Futures. And the other is called Geeking Out, A Deep Dive into Jewish Studies. Those are up there right now. But in a few weeks, there's going to be a bunch more. And it's representative of what we hope can be one day where there will be opportunities to study asynchronously, uh, meaning at your own pace in your own way, in addition to studying synchronously with a live teacher and with and like what you were saying, Lex, I think it's really critical with a live community. It's so important to note to to underscore that what we hope will happen over time is that a community of people will find one another who is most interested in doing that, rolling up our sleeves and reimagining Judaism for the for the next era. Yeah, and on the community front, I would like even the asynchronous courses to begin to take steps towards that. And let's say you're a person listening. And you let's let's the majority of people listening right now, as much as I would love this not to be the case, will probably not be enrolled in this first semester's synchronous courses. The majority of people here could absolutely go to our website and do our asynchronous courses. They're free. They're available. And I think it would be the coolest thing ever if people found a chavruta, found a study partner to go through one of those asynchronous courses together you know, meet every couple of weeks and you each watch one of the videos in the playlist or listen to one of the podcasts and then you check in about it. I think if you're listening to this and you want to do that, send us an email. We have onyeshiva at judaismunbound.com. That's U-N-Y-E-S-H-I-V-A at judaismunbound.com. And we're really interested in helping you create a situation that is course-esque, even if it's not quite a, a course in a traditional sense taught by a teacher in real time. And just I want to name directly something you said, which is like, we're launching this even as we're still figuring it out. That's our way. Yeah, that it's our way. And I think it's it's an important thing to try and model. There's a real danger of like perfectionism. There's, there's a lot that holds institutions back. And one of the things that's been so important about us as an organization is we just sort of decide to do things, make a web page for them and hope for the best. And they haven't always been the best to be like, but some things have, you know, oh, we're going to do a 24 hour consecutive Shavuot learning event. Turns out there's many hundreds of people that will do that. Did we have a super polished logo for that the first year? No, we didn't have super polished logos until very recently when Katie Kastner Frenchman became part of our team and is amazing. But like a lot of what we have done, you would look at and say, oh, I don't know. Is that like legit? Is it sort of half baked? We need (laughs) to be trying things when they're still half baked, because if you have to I mean, I often refer to like in many contexts, you've got the the task force that then has to hand it off to the committee, which then has to create a five-year plan that then goes back to a different task force. Like, like we, we get so bogged down in that. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't feel like we anything we do publicly is sort of frozen and like our eternal approach such that it has to be perfect. I'm launching this Jewish discontinuity course. I think, God willing, I will be teaching it again in the future. And I think it's likely that it will be different. 
mm-hmm. in in the future time. And that's funny enough, actually, what discontinuity means mm. in how I'm using it in the class. Like we have this image of Judaism where maybe we don't quite think it's one perfect unbroken chain, but we do think a lot of the time that like there's been this packaged Judaism and we think that it's just been tweaked here and there. But I actually believe that due to broader society and our place in broader society and our own creative communities of people, we've drastically leapt and jumped from what Judaism is one day to what it is the next. Not not like in one day, but over the course of a few years or generations. And like, how empowering is that? How awesome is that? That people actually haven't always just thoroughly continued the traditions they received. They've actually said, eh, no, we've been talking about Shemitah lately and how important it is to have remission of debts every seven years. I do actually think that that's super important. I do actually think we should have all sorts of parts of our society where that is governing us. Turns out there is literally a thing in the Mishnah, in the first ever rabbinic text that says, nope, no more, Mm -hmm. doesn't work. We're going to say this biblical commandment that we received about remitting debts every seven years actually doesn't fully count. And the debts instead, we were going to create this loophole called the prose bull. And fully, like, that's not a continuation. That is, we don't agree. <laughs> New thing now. There's, we could go down the list of how the Talmud does it. We could go down the list of how, you know, there's things in the Talmud that we cast aside. There's entire holidays that we don't do. There's entire new holidays that began. And they didn't begin because they were continuing old ones. Simchat Torah, this beautiful moment of ending Deuteronomy and beginning Genesis, that's not a continuation. That's a new idea from the Middle Ages, not 2,000 years ago, like closer to 1,000 years ago. And people did that because they wanted to do that. It wasn't continuing anything. If you would ask people at that time, like, ah, what are you anchoring Simchat Torah on? I mean, they could probably give you something, but mostly, you know, we should have a day where we close this scroll and begin it again. We should, with every fiber of our being, be looking to create the new versions of Simchat Torah, the new versions of Prozbul, much as I much as I hate that loophole around debts. Like I do admire that we have that radical leap in our tradition. Maybe that's a good opportunity to do a little bit of a taste of the Anyashiva in particular relation to Shemitah, because here we have this Jewish practice. It seems like more or less it has gone out of practice. I mean, that there, or it went out of practice for a long period of time. Now, you could ask, why did it go out of practice? Well, some people say it went out of practice because we weren't living in the land of Israel. And I don't know exactly the history of Shemitah in Israel. But at some point, somebody took it really seriously and said, hey, we got to be resting the land and whatnot. So in Israel, there's a whole thing about going back to that agricultural roots of Shemitah. Outside of Israel, everybody basically continued to ignore Shemitah until about 2000 when Hazon started to take it more seriously and explore what it might mean. And there are all kinds of cool experiments in various places like the Leashtag Ranch, where they, which is near San Diego, California, where they are kind of trying to grow things like dirt containers that are standing on top of the the earth so that the things aren't actually growing in the earth. They're actually growing like in these special dirt containers on top of the earth. So there's all kinds of cool experiments and saying like, what would this mean agriculturally and ecologically? 
But there doesn't seem to have been a lot of attention paid to that whole remission of debts business, maybe in part because Hillel's prose bull that you talked about, this kind of legal loophole that basically erased the debt remission in, in the early rabbinic period, it sort of, maybe it was like so successful and or I guess people probably really like to like cancel the whole, I mean, rich people really like the whole idea of <laughs> the cancellation of remission of debts because that's kind of, you know, annoying to them. So we end up with this kind of vestigial practice. Now that hasn't really been in a very serious way for the most part practiced in 2000 years. So then here we are at the Yeshiva, and we're just kind of like reading the Torah, you know, we're reading it. Wait a second, this thing, that what, there was a thing where the land was rested every seven years and there was also a remission of debts? Like, that seems pretty cool. I never heard of that. Why don't we practice that? That actually sounds really cool and really necessary because we're having climate change and we're having all these poor people that are saddled under medical debt and all kinds of other debt and, you know, credit card debt. These things seem like really relevant to our society. What are we doing with Judaism about it? And at a certain point, it's a little hard to take if you would go to a rabbi and they, they would say, oh, we, uh, we haven't done that for 2000 years. That's not part of Judaism anymore. And you're like, well, that that's unsatisfying. You know, like that. Why, mm-hmm. why not? These are actually cool ideas. Why shouldn't they be part of Judaism? And it may be descriptively true that they have not been part of Judaism for 2000 years, but it is also descriptively true that they once were, and they're still kind of out there. So then what do you do? Like, how do you, you know, and, and for Rosh Hashanah, I was doing a text study about all the texts of the Shemitah with some people in the synagogue that I don't attend. And, um, And, you know, one of the things, and a lot of them, this is near the University of Chicago, like a lot of them are very sophisticated economics people, you know, and they're basically saying, like, from an economic standpoint, this is like a pretty bad idea. And it's like, okay, so now we know that too, right? Now we have a sophisticated understanding of how economics works. How would we imagine the values of this idea that you want to rest the land, that you want to remit debts? How would we integrate that with a hyper-sophisticated understanding of economics? And of course, there, that, there's economics principles that are disputed in different ways, and we should be aware of that as well. And that is the kind of process that we can go through with these texts and with these ideas and with this history and say, well, there's an opportunity here. And in fact, there almost seems to be a, a call, a demand to take this material seriously and do something with it. Okay, now what do we do? Let's do it. What you're describing with Shemitah and with the experience of reading the Torah and being like, wait, this is here and this is this is cool. Like, and why aren't we doing that? Like, I, I feel like that's almost everybody I know's starting point of Shemitah. Right. Is hearing about it and being like, why did I not know about this? Mm-hmm. Because for many people, how we think about Judaism is actually sort of a big grab bag of things. It doesn't matter to me and to many people I know whether the Jewish thing we're doing is from thousands of years ago or from yesterday. If it's worthwhile and interesting and meaningful and good, then great, let's do that. What becomes a problem is when you learn, you know, X, Y, or Z reason why things were discarded. You mentioned pro- like then all of a sudden, you you gain this empathy for the people who did that discarding in the past because they had real reasons. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, if we were to revive it, like would we be sort of crapping on their <laughs> on their decision? And like maybe I don't know, like maybe, but it seems like there's a lot more to gain from actively seeking out those 
traditions of the past and applying them in our world than there is in not doing that. Mm -hmm. And what's so funny is people who criticize us and our approach are so regularly saying that, oh, we're just predisposed to like not like what institutions are doing or what halakha, Jewish law says about stuff, what the, and like, no, what we're predisposed against is taking as a given whatever the 2021 version of Judaism is as eternal. I don't want to do that. I want to create a level playing field where stuff from the year 1 CE and the year 1000 BCE and the year 1000 CE and the year 2021 CE are all in play. And we can look at all of those things and decide which of those apply to our world. I happen to think that on the Shemitah question, the the anchor point of you know 2500 years ago is a more helpful anchor point than a few hundred years ago or now because there was more of an aspiration to do it in a serious way mm-hmm. in our text. Whether they actually did, you know, that's all the mm-hmm. question. But at least there was a, like a concrete aspiration as opposed to now where it's like, oh, we can't really strive to do that because it's not Israel or because it's too ambitious, whatever. And we should be mining our tradition. We should be assuming at every turn that there is wisdom in the stuff that lost. Mm-hmm. That, like we should be assuming as our starting point, oh my gosh, there is a tragedy at play because we've only been able to salvage certain kinds of Jewish things. Like I get that we live in a practical world and like certain mindsets, certain practices, certain whatever, like that's going to win. Like Passover is going to have a way of doing Passover. We should be saying for Passover, for everything else, oh, if there were no Seder, if there weren't a Passover Seder, what would the, what would there be? Oh, there actually were these different sacrifices. Like I'm not interested in animal sacrifice. I'm a vegetarian. I'm not interested in animal sacrifice. I am interested in diving into the animal sacrifices and being like, huh, why are there this number of them? Mm-hmm. Should we bring back a different kind of sacrifice that isn't killing animals? So, like all of those questions I want to ask and they require an orientation that is A, we don't have to do what we've received and B, we are empowered to create new things that people will receive in the future. And for whatever set of reasons, doing that feels like a huge, like we need 20 versions of the Anyashiva to hammer home that that's allowed. Because so many of us, whether we are, you know, cultural Jews that never set foot in synagogue, whether we are regular synagogue goers who have a, a rich treasure trove of knowledge, like we've all learned that somehow we have to be really nervous about changing whatever version of Jewish stuff we've received. Mm-hmm. We have to be more nervous about that than we are about being different from 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 500 years in the future. And my question is, why? We look at every point in Jewish history and there's been radical shifts that people have either given themselves the license to do or done because they didn't even realize they were changing stuff. Let's realize we're changing stuff and do it anyway. Right. And one reason is because people don't know that. And so, for example, I think that's what your class in the Yeshiva is is meant to do, is to show you, look look how many times we've done exactly what you, you said, where we've changed things. And so, actually, cha- I think you have this as like the catchphrase of your class, right? Like, changing things is the tradition or something. The most ancient Jewish tradition is upending the tradition. That's been my, my go-to. Yeah. And at the same time, you said this, I just want to reinforce it, that we're not saying that Everything they did before was wrong and we should be changing everything. Sometimes we're saying that. And sometimes we're saying, look, what they changed actually may well have been right for their time. Maybe this or that change made sense for the condition that the Jews were in at a certain time. They were 
in exile, there was a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism. They were wondering, whatever the reason might be, that they said, hey, we can't really remit debts right now. Okay, you know, I'm willing to accept that, like, it made sense at the time. I'm also willing to accept the possibility that there was capture by the rich donors from the very beginning, right? I mean, who knows? We don't know. But the idea that because they did it at a time that was right for them to do that is not the reason that we should maintain their tradition in our time. Just like you said, the tradition is that we should now change that practice so that it will be right for our time. Where I'm trying to go with my class on Jewish text is to give us this experience of being able to look at Jewish texts, including the Torah. It's a lot of Torah in my class, but a couple of things are interesting that just reading the text, just I, I kind of sat down and read all the texts in the Torah about Shemitah just to see what was there. And two major things really hit me. One is that in Exodus, where the idea of Shemitah is introduced, I'm pretty sure for the first time, it is adjacent to this description of Shabbat. They're literally in, in two, two uh, sentences right next to each other. So therefore, one could say, hey, maybe that's intentional. Maybe there's something that we should be learning from Shabbat into Shemitah. And the interesting thing about how Shabbat is described there is it says, six days shall you do your deeds, but on the seventh day you shall cease. By the way, Shabbat means cease or stop, not rest. So uh, it says, on the seventh day you shall Shabbat, you shall cease, in order that your ox and your ass may rest and that your bondsman and your stranger and the stranger may be refreshed. The purpose of Shabbat is not so you can rest. The purpose of Shabbat is so that your animals and your servants can rest. That might mean that you actually have to not rest, like that you actually have to do more work or depending on how, you know, again, we could use different words to describe this, but that you're going to have a harder time because your sort of assistants are not going to be available. And if we think about Shemitah, where a lot of people say, oh, what is a sabbatical? Shemitah is a sabbatical year. What is a sabbatical? A sabbatical is a time to rest, you know, a time to have a break from my normal job, turn the volume down. It's a time to take a break. It's a time for me to be refreshed. And if we look at the adjacency there in the text and we say, well, so the text about the Shemitah says, six years shall you sow your land and gather in its yield, right? Very parallel. Six days shall you do your deeds for Shabbat. Six, days, six years shall you sow your land and gather in its yield for the Shemitah. But in the seventh, you shall release it. Shemitah means release and leave it fallow. And then it says, let the needy among your people eat of it and what remains shall be eaten by the wild beasts. So again, we have the kind of the needy, like your servants, and we have the wild beasts, the animals. If we look at the parallelism here, then we see, hey, maybe the idea for Shemitah, for a sabbatical, is not for you to rest. It's for actually, maybe you are going to have a harder year. You're not going to have available to you the same assistance from others. In fact, they're going to be allowed to just come into your land and take whatever food they want, meaning they'll probably have they will probably have to work less, right? Because their food is actually more secure during the sabbatical year than it usually is. And so you're going to have to find a new way to live in the world that year. That feels to me like the kind of thinking that you can start to do on Shemitah, right? Only if you dive really deep into the text itself and have that experience. So I, so I think that this is some of the work that we, we want to do along with our community. That's one example where our approach is actually not for us to do something entirely new. Our answer here is we should be consulting stuff that's super old 
and asking how it applies to our world. You and I have both, in different ways and at different times, suggested and occasionally asserted, like the level beyond suggesting, that we need to do a lot in Jewish life that is not just anchored on the past and that is new. Like we need to not be so cautious about everything having an anchor in the past that we forbid ourselves from taking radical steps now that are good steps. I want to be clear. I don't think everybody out there is waving around pitchforks and saying, don't create new Jewish stuff. Only continue what you've received. I don't think that's the case. But I think most of the time, what we're committed to doing comes from a place of fear and is all about preserving Judaism. It's about, oh my gosh, we've received this thing and a lot of Jews don't really do it. They're not going to synagogue or they're not lighting candles on Shabbat or they're not X, Y, or Z. And that's scary because if more and more Jews were to not do those things, then maybe there'd be no Judaism. By the way, I questioned that, but that's like the logic. And so we set up organizations for people to do those rituals more. We don't set up institutions whose entire mission is, to use your language, like to, to do the R&D work of Jewish life, to say, oh, these are ideas that we specifically haven't done in the past. Now we're going to implement them. The Anyashiva hopes to be the breeding ground, the ideation system for that set of things. And my hope is that it actually won't just be the Anyashiva doing it but that our existence will help people feel that they have permission, that there's like a symbol through the Anyashiva of like an official Jewish apparatus that stands for changing tradition. Beyond, we believe Judaism changes. I don't feel that same, I don't feel people saying as a positive good, we are out to change Judaism. Mm -hmm. If you say that to people, even progressive people, the response is usually, wait, what do you, you want to change Judaism? Sure, Judaism changes, passive voice. Mm -hmm. Like there are changes to Judaism and we're not opposed to that. Like our, our world changes and so Judaism adapts to meet that world. Like, no, I actually don't want Jewish change to only be a response to the changing world. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to just be wherever the world goes. We go like, there's ways that the world changes in problematic ways and we shouldn't just follow that all the time. I want individual Jews and communities of Jews to say, we have agendas. We actually care very much about the directions that Judaism is going to go. We have the right, just as every community has in the past, to yell at each other about which directions are best and then implement those directions. We have to do that. It wasn't just, you know, people look back on the time after the Second Temple. They're like, oh, there were all these sects. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and other blah, 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 blah. The idea that that was unique to that time period is just so silly to me. We just reached a point where the rabbis won enough that everybody who didn't toe the line of what they believed was seen as somehow not Judaism. That's just Jewish culture or Jewishness. Ah, Emma Goldman is having a Yom Kippur picnic. That's not Judaism. That's, you know, somebody creating an, a counter-Judaism who happens to be Jewish. What if Yom Kippur, our historical relation to it, includes the fact that people have specifically eaten stuff and not fasted because they reject the idea that it should be about a human fast. By the way, I, I fast on Yom Kippur. I actually get a lot of meaning out of that. Um, but 
What if we saw that that tradition was part of it? And we're throwing out a hundred examples from Prozbul to Simchat Torah to Emma Goldman to like every single stage because we haven't, we haven't internalized this enough. We're too indebted, to use a Shemitah word, to the past and not enough indebted to people of the future who might be well served by change to that past. You know, this wasn't our necessarily our intent going in to when we started the podcast, but based on what people write to us and what we understand, it's it's interesting that what has happened or what we've noticed is that there are all these people in all kinds of places, physical, geographic places all over the world, and it turns out that there's actually a lot of people and they're all kind of scattered around. And the digital revolution is what allows all of those folks to find one another in a new land. We've talked about this idea of the new land being the digital land. And I think that in the way that you and I have had this kind of little mini campus, it's just the two of us who actually are from different generations and don't agree about everything. And you're a rabbi and I'm not a rabbi and all those kind of things, right? And we've said, yeah, but we love hanging out in this space and envisioning together and bouncing our ideas off one another. If you can close your eyes and sort of imagine, and and I'm starting to be able to picture it because there's that website called Gather Town, which is kind of like a mm-hmm. kind of like a Zoom type of thing, but like it has a it, it looks like it's a place when you can like wander around a uh, like a park, and and if you kind of come into proximity with another person, like two windows pop up and you can talk to each other. And I'm imagining that like at some point there could be kind of a campus or maybe even a city of people like us, right, who are trying to imagine and play around and who don't all agree about everything, but agree that that's the spirit in which we want to live our Jewish lives. And we can all hang out together in this new campus or this new land. And the un- the Unyeshiva is just one place on that campus. And so many of our friends and guests on Judaism Unbound have a place on that campus as well. The picture is starting to become clearer to me, like something that could actually exist in the next Mm -hmm. decade or whatever. And I think that what we are doing here is trying to sort of set off in that direction. And and, uh, we really are inviting everybody to come join us. That we are. And I just, I, we're going to close, but I I first want to say, since this is like the close of many of our Shemitah episodes, I mean, we talked a little bit about Shemitah, but we talked about a lot of other things too. I am just unbelievably touched and impressed and excited and energized by the response by our listeners to these Shemitah conversations. We've been touched and impressed and excited and energized at many points along this podcast, but the specificity, the application of the conversations we've had about Shemitah, we've gotten a lot of notes from people. Hey, like I didn't know about Shemitah before and now I'm, you know, talking about it in this service I'm helping to lead. Or now I'm launching a campaign to raise money for medical debt relief. Now I'm like, there's been a ton of those kinds of things. And like, look, if none of those people join the Anyashiva, I'll, I'll be sad by the way, but like, it's still a huge deal that we can help with that. And that in many ways, the work we dreamed of of beginning with this podcast is in fact happening on this question of Shemitah, on our relationship to the planet, on the recalibration of our society in all the ways we've been talking about. So first, I just want to say thank you to everyone and also call out that if if in some way our recent episodes about Shemitah affected you, that you please, please be in touch with us. And in a few seconds, I'll say all the ways for you to do that. Um, but also on the Anyashiva front, we are so excited about 
this. We do believe that this is going to help our work really launch forward. So the details, the classes that Dan and I are teaching synchronously in real time on Zoom will be beginning the week of October 4th. October 4th is a Monday. My class is on Monday evenings, US time, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern, 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific, and it will begin on October 4th. Dan, uh, and by the way, my class is called Jewish Discontinuity. Dan's class is called Leadership in a Time of Wandering, and it's on Tuesdays beginning October 5th at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. And that one, if you're in Europe, you're able to tune into that at evening Europe time. We've actually heard from some folks that are considering that. We really are excited to share those courses with you. All of these things are available at judaismunbound.com slash onyeshiva, and you can learn more in our on Yeshiva Grand Tour, we're going to have two Zoom gatherings before any of these things, just so you can ask whatever questions you have. And those are going to be taking place on Monday, September 20th and Tuesday, September 21st at the same time as when our classes are. So 8 p.m. Eastern for the 20th and 3 p.m. Eastern for the 21st. Um, We'll be giving a, a grand overview, a grand tour of the Anyashiva, and also allowing you to ask whatever questions you have about the structure and content of our courses. So that's our game plan. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation. So here are the ways you can be in touch with us if you do have questions right now that you want to answer, or if you just want to send notes about Shemitah that you've been affected by. So you can hit us up on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. All of our handles are Judaism Unbound. You can go to our website, judaismunbound.com. And last but not least, you can email us at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. We would love it if you actually feel touched to just sign up for our classes. I mean, you can come to our grand tour, but if you want to sign up directly for either Dan or my class, you can do so at judaismunbound.com slash onyeshiva, U-N-Y-E-S-H-I-V-A. There's links to each of our classes, and then you can press the register link. So the last thing is, if you're not able to register for our synchronous classes, but you want to support us financially, we deeply appreciate that. And you can do that via judaismunbound.com slash donate on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. 373 more days of Shemitah, folks. <laughs>